but also to walk with us, to ever be with us, to be the one who not only in that state of sinless perfection walked with man, but pursued sinful man all the way to Golgotha, and even to this day is our Redeemer, the theme of the one who in his union with us, our Redeemer, is nearby. I'm going to read from Genesis 3.8. I'll read from Isaiah 43. And then I'll read also from the book of Revelation chapter 1, all dealing with the theme of Christ who is near. And they, that is Adam and his wife, this is right after they sinned, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then Isaiah chapter 43 Verses 1 through 3, listen to that theme of the one who is with us. But now thus says the Lord, He created you, O Jacob. He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. And then one last passage all the way. The book of Revelation, chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Thus far, by the reading of God's word, uh, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's holy and infallible word. Lord, we come to you this morning and we would ask that you might minister to us from your word, that we might be a people who know it well, that we would not fear the criticisms of those who would cause us to scorn or to think little of the manner in which your word comes to us, that being inspired, or the condition of it as it is the perfect revelation that you have given to us and to the church in every age. And so, Lord, if we are to build our lives upon something, may it be this, that rule for life and godliness. And Lord, as we look at this glorious, gracious concept of you who walks with us, despite our sin and failure, if it were not for you pursuing us beyond the walls of that beautiful garden, We would never have hope to get back into that state of peace and rest with our maker. For you have become our redeemer. And so help us then to exalt in you this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. So in lieu of taking sermons that I've preached before and go to congregations that I'm not really familiar with, I felt like I can do that as well here as I can do it somewhere else, and I'd rather be here than somewhere else, because frankly, I like y'all better than anybody else. I say to my wife, you're my favorite, 
But what I really mean by that is I don't really like anybody as much as I like you. I, I don't know what that means exactly. But as it relates to congregations, I love my brothers at Presbytery. I love the saints in other churches. In fact, at Presbytery meetings, we get to meet even some of the ladies and others in those local congregations that serve us and prepare meals and take care of us when we are there. And I acknowledge and give thanks to them, but there's nothing like coming home. There's nothing like the, the familiarity that exists, especially when you do application. And this morning, I'm going back to a, a couple of sermons that were part of a, a short series preached in 2017, so I feel like I'm safe. You won't go, I just feel like I just heard this, because when I looked at it, I went, I don't even remember preaching this, until I went back through the notes and went, oh, and I was moved, not by the content necessarily uh, of the sermon, but especially the idea, the concept, the reality that we see. And I, I guess I could have read from Psalm 139, if I go up to the heights of the mountains, there you are with me. If I descend even into the grave, Sheol, there you are with me as well. This idea that for the one who is united to Christ by faith, who is part of the covenant people of God, we have this great security and comfort, although at times it doesn't feel like a comfort, that God is with us. And not in this vague sense in which even liberal theologians may say, God is with us, but in this distinct and glorious way that Christ, in his pursuit of a sinful people, has worked himself into our lives. He has pursued us. Not only unto redemption, but even unto the day when he will gather us to himself. And so we find this glorious reality of Emmanuel, God with us, from Genesis to Revelation. And so I hope this simple theme might serve to encourage you this morning. Three points that I want to make. The first, made to walk with God. Made to walk with God. Secondly, Walking through water and fire. Walking through water and fire. And then thirdly, walking us. Walking us to glory. Let's look at the first point. Made to walk with God. That is what we are made for. Another way you might say it is we are made by God and we are made for God. And the way in which God relates to and interacts as a three-person God... In his personality, he's not a consummate, cosmic, universal bachelor. You know those types, right? But he dwells and has dwelt forever within the company of the persons of the Godhead. One God, three persons. And the way in which we ought to look at the cosmology, the creation, the beginning of all things is as a father giving to his beloved son a beautiful bride. The father, who in his role as the father, made all things through the son, and in making all things, and man in particular, gave to his son, the eternally begotten son of God, the second person of the Godhead, a bride, a covenant people, a gift, and that is... The saints, or those are the saints. Now, it began with Adam and his wife, 
And even as God made Adam and his wife, he made them in perfection with holiness, righteousness, dominion over the creatures. He gave to them a call, and even they, in bearing God's image, were made for one another. God gave to Adam creation that he might organize and build and take dominion and order, rightly so. And then when he gave to Adam Eve or the woman, she doesn't become Eve until after the fall, in fact, God created the church. In fact, at our recent Presbyterian exam, the question was put to one of the licentients, when was the church established? And he said, in the resurrection of Christ. And I thought, okay, correct enough, but the church that is the corporate body of Christ who made the world was when Adam and Eve got married. Adam and Eve, where two or more are gathered together, there are two. There's the church. That's the seed of the church. And then, of course, we see a sort of restart with Noah and his wife and their family. And then, of course, God made Adam not only to dwell in creation, to walk alongside the woman, to be fruitful, to multiply, to take dominion, that glorious task, but also to walk with God. And in fact, we never see in Scripture a record of God's walking with men until we see the fall of man. Now, that does not mean that God and man did not fellowship. The reason why we do not see a record of that until Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, do you think God comes into the garden and asks the question, where are you? Because he is ignorant as to their moral status or their geographical proximity. No, God knows exactly. In fact, when God goes into the garden, it is because he has foreordained, though is not the agent of sin, he foreordained it as part of his perfect decrees. That's a whole other conversation we can have outside of a sermon. But as he's coming into the garden, he knows he's stepping into a mess that Adam and his wife got themselves into. Parents, it's not unlike you giving directions to your children, walking into that place where you gave them those directions, knowing full well that all of the instructions you gave were either forgotten or not accomplished. And I know that maybe that's a bit of a pessimistic, maybe it's just realistic. They, you understand what you're walking into, especially when you hear, instead of cleaning, the pitter-patter of little feet of boys playing indoor basketball. Right? Or screaming. <laughs> I know I'm walking into a mess, but I walk into that mess nonetheless to bring redeemed order. God came to man in order that he isn't saying to them, oh, by the way, it's over. We're done. Get out of the garden. But even as he removed Adam and Eve in the curse from the garden and gave the sentence of death, he also pursued them, covenantally speaking, outside the garden. They were not meant to leave the garden. But Christ follows them outside the walls of the garden so that he might, in due season, provide for them the means by which they might be brought back, covenantally speaking, into that place of peace and beauty and rest, back into the garden. This is what we're made for. And so when you go to an unbeliever, you can appeal 
to their hearts, their affections, as those whose hearts and affections will never be fully satisfied, as Augustine said, our hearts will never rest until they rest in Christ. We are restless until that day. We are restless under the end of war. We are restless under the end of this chaos of sin and hedonism and pluralism and Unitarianism. All the isms are the product of man endeavoring to get back into the garden through sinful human means. But God is present. In fact, the reason why the preaching of the word of God has power is because Christ is present by his Holy Spirit to make effectual the preaching of that word unto salvation. He is present by his Spirit. There is grace then in this. There is the glorious beauty of the the structure whereby God made men. And there is glorious beauty and grace whereby God pursued men in their sins so that they might be redeemed. The way that Derek Thomas put it is God has sent the hounds of heaven after us. And he will chase us down and he will have us for himself in accordance with his will. And that leads me to my second point. Walking through water and fire. Now in the book of Isaiah, we read of the extraordinary love of God in kind of the language of a romantic poem. The kinds of poems that a man might write to a woman. And I would walk 500 miles. <laughs> I would walk 500 more. And you know you may laugh, it's a little silly. But it is an expression of profound, extraordinary, I would hope that the thought of the writer of covenant marital affection and even then, there are those moments in the life of a young man or a young woman when they are looking at one another and they cannot help but express affection that cannot be stated in terms that come like facts and science. It must spill over into poetry. Like a love that is like a summer's day. What does that mean? Well, it is warm. But you don't just say warm, you say like a summer's day. But as it captures the sense and sentiment of something greater than just warm. Sometimes it is sharp. Sometimes it is an overwhelming flood. And what we find oftentimes in the prophets and in the books of wisdom is a poetic expression of sense and sentiment that cannot be captured in Prose. And this is what the prophet says on behalf of God who is writing to his people a love poem. Fear not, the Lord says, for I have redeemed you. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. 
And the flame shall not consume you. Now, when you hear that expression of covenantal affection, it goes beyond romance into this eternal, divine, cosmic, unquenchable, unchangeable affection. Here is a principle that I hope you take with you as you leave even today. Cold theology does not move. It may inform, but unless you meditate upon it, contemplate it, and understand its context in the larger story that God is telling of his redeeming purposes, that theology may hang around your neck like an ornament, but you will never understand its beauty. In my office, on my desk, there's a a pocket watch. And that pocket watch is a very simple, inexpensive gold, not even really gold-plated, but that color of brass, simple pocket watch. And I was given it by my father, and that would be significant enough. But let's say I just purchased something like that on eBay. It's worth how much? The price that I paid for it, except on the back of that pocket watch is engraved the name of my grandfather, my grandmother's father, Joseph Hodson, or James Hodson, rather. And because of that engraved name, I know two things. Number one, it was his, and it is now mine. And though that signature actually devalues the watch on eBay in terms of resale value, it is of extraordinary value to me. When you think, when you think of all of God's revelation, and there's a lot of it. This Bible is particularly thick for some reason. There's no more books than you have. It's just big print. Helps me read up here. The story, and I don't mean story in some sort of vague, weird, contemporary language sense. The entire episode of human history is told to us in words that make up this entire narrative of God's redeeming purposes. And the highlights of it are found in Isaiah 43 in these ways. That God walks with men in water and God walks through us or with us through fire. Now when you think water, I want you to think Baptism, when you, when you read here fire, I want you to think the refiners consecrating. They're both consecrating elements. And the reason why they're essential in our understanding of salvation is because it is only through water and fire that we might dwell with Christ as those who are consecrated. So when ye I say God walks through us with water, children, I'm asking this rhetorically though I may get an answer, What is the number one thing, the episode in biblical history you think of? I think of the Red Sea. I think of the Jordan River. I think from 1 Corinthians 10, Abraham was called out of Ur through the Euphrates. Abraham crossed over. All of these episodes in covenant history or a people were set apart for God's holy use to be his people always involve the element of water. 
There were times in the book of Ezekiel where the people of God were sprinkled with water or sprinkled with blood as a consecrating element that they were set apart for God's holy use, for holy worship. So, as Israel is going through the Red Sea, it is an element of salvation for those who are his people, of condemnation and judgment for those who are not his people, the soldiers of Egypt who were buried, as it were, drowned beneath the sea. The reason those waters part, whether it is the Red Sea or the Jordan, is because Christ is present with his people. So that we can say, in baptism... We are united to Christ's consecrating work. How then are we consecrated? What does the Bible say? We are baptized into his death so that we might what? Be reconciled, resurrected, because all who die with Christ are also due to his resurrection raised with Christ. We are buried in the name of Christ Jesus. And so the prophet is not only saying something about the covenant affection of God, he is talking about the covenant purposes of God, and, stay with me, he is talking about God's plan of redemption. In glorious poetic language, the water. In fact, when God made all things by the presence of his Holy Spirit, what was the Holy Spirit hovering over? Water. We are from our inception waterborne. We come forth from that element that reveals to us this idea, this notion of baptism, of consecration. But not only that, this ordinance that bears witness to our new birth is the ordinance that bears witness to God's purposes to make us like himself holy. So when Isaiah the prophet speaks of Christ walking with us through the fire, what do you think of? The first thing I think of is the burning bush. And Moses is called by this voice, come near, take off your shoes for the ground upon which you are standing is holy. Parents, next time your children are in church and they refuse to put shoes on, you have a teaching opportunity. (laughs) Well, at least, maybe, they're reflecting the idea that here we are gathered together in the presence of God. This, This ground's land is holy. But more to the point, God was showing Moses what was necessary in order for man to dwell in the presence of God and the kind of presence that God would be among those whom he has called according to his purpose. What is the significance of a bush that is on fire but never burns? What does fire normally do? It consumes. It brings things to ash. Fire is, like water, an element that either brings destruction or if you're delivered like Well, Noah, how could I miss Noah? Through the instrument of the ark, we can think of that even that through Christ and hiding in him, we are delivered from the wrath of God that comes down upon the world. But in order to dwell in the presence of Almighty God and not be consumed, the alternative is consecration. 
God is saying to Moses, I will dwell among you and Israel as this fire inhabits the bush. And the continuing testimony of that is that as Israel is delivered from Egypt and they move through the wilderness, Christ is present with his people by smoke and fire. A pillar of fire by night, a pillar of smoke or cloud by day. He is present through the very thing that is revealed in the altar of sacrifice. That Christ will burn that in place of his people so that they might not be consumed. And so the burning of the altar, the sacrifice points to what? It points to the one who will be laid upon that altar, who will suffer the wrath of God to its fullest extent, and yet itself, himself, not be consumed. He would be raised on the third day. Listen, if you want to compel the minds and hearts of those who you go out to, who you seek to be evangelized, you need to know the story of redemption in the most beautiful and significant of ways that God himself has revealed to us. This story of God's redeeming purposes is the greatest story the world has ever told because it is God's story. And in fact, all good stories do what? They borrow shamelessly from the story of redemption. And so we see that Christ walks with us through water and fire as testimony of his redeeming, consecrating, and sanctifying purposes. And then there is another occasion that we find, and that comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 4, where Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are thrown into the fiery furnace because they refuse to do what? To worship the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had built in honor of himself. They refused to bow the knee, even as Daniel did throughout that whole book, to bow the knee to the leaders of the state. And because of their public disobedience, he grew enraged. And in fact, the fire, the way that Daniel is written, the fire is heated in the same way that Nebuchadnezzar's wrath burns against the children of Israel, these three sons of Israel. And they say, we would rather obey God than man. Do what you will to us. And they quietly step into the flames or are thrown in without fighting. And there they stand, unconsumed. Why? Because the flames on that day were not meant for the purpose of consuming. But even as Christ was present, as they looked in to that fiery furnace through the, that, that sort of shimmery sheen that you see around flames. There was one like a son of man, of whom we read in the book of Isaiah and in the apocalyptic stories of Scripture. It is Christ himself. Why is he consecrating them? Because he is showing Nebuchadnezzar, he is showing Babylon, he is showing his people then and now that the king of heaven and earth is greater than all the kings of earth. 
He is showing not only the power and the the life-giving power of his presence, but his redeeming purpose is to save from judgment a people unto himself. Now, the practical application of that is not if the state ever comes for you with ovens, expect that God will preserve you when you go in. Because the testimony of Daniel 4 culminates in the death and resurrection of Christ. And the ultimate testimony of Daniel chapter 4 is this. One day you and I will be born again into a kingdom that cannot be shaken, the new heavens and the new earth, and we will be without sin, without blemish, without spot. Because Christ has brought us through not only the sufferings and even the tortures of men, but death itself. Last point. Walking us to glory. I've already alluded to the one who is the instrument of our redemption. And so when we look at the whole of Scripture, what we find is man was created in the garden, man sins, man is thrust out of the garden, Christ pursues men. And in the Old Testament, we see glimpses of the identity and the power and the purposes of our Redeemer. But it is in the Gospels that we see him born unto men, and Mary and Joseph are told by the angel, his name shall be Jesus, because he shall deliver his people from their sins. Like Joshua, who led Israel through the Jordan, like Moses through the Red Sea, he will deliver his people from their sins. But Christ doesn't just walk with us now, In fact, when Christ prepares to go to glory or is preparing his disciples for the day of his inevitable ascension after his resurrection, this is what he says to them in John chapter 14. And this is our confidence in all gospel ministry, in all life here on earth, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of death, in the midst of uncertainty. This is what Jesus says to his disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. He's speaking of whom? He's speaking to the disciples of himself and that he will come again. And to combine then this reality of Christ coming again, that we are not to have fear, is compounded by the glorious promise of Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, where Christ speaks to his disciples of the mission and the power of it. This is the Great Commission. You know it well. And Jesus came and said to them, this is the disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father. Why baptizing? Because it is the sign and seal that we are united to Christ's death until he comes. We are consecrated. We are set apart because God wants all of us as a church To say with one voice, 
We are not on the Egyptian side of the sea. We are on the Israelite side of the sea. We are with him. He is with us. And that is the glorious promise that Christ says what he says next, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, right? Consecrated us through fire. And then this promise, behold, I am with you always to the end of this age. Oftentimes we so focus on the language of the first part of the Great Commission, we neglect the second part. The reason why baptism, teaching, making disciples, all of this has power and effect is because Christ is present with us by his Holy Spirit. It was good, it was necessary that the person, Jesus, go to glory so that he might, with the Father, send to us the Spirit. And in the same way that Christ was effective to destroy the devil, to break the back of Satan, to kill death, to put death to death, the Spirit will be effective to do what? Minister water and fire unto the whole transformation of the world in which God has placed us. And so it is good for us to think of Christ's redemption, his redeeming work as being complete at the moment of his ascension. But the effect of the cross, the effect of Christ's presence is no less more glorious. In fact, Christ says, it's more glorious. It's better that I go so that the Spirit might come. Now, we long to see Christ face to face. But the way that we ought to think of that is to see Christ face to face as we see one another right now. How do we see Christ now? To the preaching of his word. Not through his... Either the Belgic, I think it might be the Helvetic. One of those confessions says, not through images that are dumb, that means they say nothing, but through the lively preaching of the word of God. Christ is present with us through the Spirit as he pours out upon the nations salvation through his word preached, through the sacraments that are the gospel presented to us. In that he hears our prayers as we see in Revelation. And he, in response to our prayers, does what? He takes all the prayers of all the saints and he throws them down mixed with his power and there are peals of thunder and flashes of lightning. Christ is walking us all the way to glory. I have in many moments in my life Walked with my children into places they were afraid to go. The doctor's office. <laughs> to some new experience. To some school event. Of course, at some age, they're like, no, don't go in. Just drop me off. <laughs> and then you remind them, remember, somebody's walking with you. Behave. Live as though Christ is with you. But the glorious promise in the midst of trial, in the midst of enemies that surround us, in the midst of the unknown future, in the midst of great sorrow, is that Christ is relentless in his pursuit to redeem men, to comfort men, to bring us all the way home. This is the promise, and this is the promise upon which we stand. Let's pray.
Lord, 